At first, he thought it was mirage. The sort of strange moving waves that blend the edges of sky and earth when the sun is beating down and the heat is high. You've seen it, but it seemed kind of early that day and a little bit too cool just yet. He was a rancher, a livestock man who happened to be out in the pasture checking on the animals, and he was in his element. He had another job too, but not that day, so he sat on a rock not far from the edge of the road, and with the stick that he'd picked up, he began to dig at the dry earth and wear a groove into it. He was thinking about the last time that he'd been to church. In their church, they did things a little differently than we do. There was always a meal, always, but the meal was a ceremonial one. They would offer it to God, holding it high overhead and waving it back and forth, back and forth, almost like they were trying to fan its smell upward to God so that he would notice. It was offered like an invitation to friendship, one that they sort of hoped and assumed that God would accept, so it had become a very important practice to them. And so they always did it, always. Every single time they came to church, they would lift that meal, wave that meal, offer the invitation to friendship, and then count on God to think sort of kindly toward them. Last time he'd gone to church, he was the one who had done it. He was one of the pastors, his other job. So it was his job, but also a privilege. And though he had offered the invitation a number of times before, the last time, it didn't exactly feel like a privilege because it didn't feel genuine. It felt sort of empty. And he wondered why. As he, Joel, sat pondering these things, he noticed a grasshopper not far from the end of his stick. Another one too, and then several more. They were thick, thicker than usual as a matter of fact. And as he looked across the pasture, he could see that there was something wrong. Those had been no heat waves at the edge of the earth. The movement that had been at the horizon was now at his feet, and it was nothing short of a plague, a real plague of grasshoppers. This was unbelievable. Too many to count. They were now scaring the livestock, which had turned and were running his way. And in what amounted to just a few minutes' time, they had eaten that pasture all the way down to the dirt. And they stretched literally from horizon to horizon as far as his eyes could see. As he rounded up his animals and he tried to outrun the wave, he thought about the stories that he'd been told as a boy, the stories of Moses and Egypt and the plague of grasshoppers there. The old timers had told stories about it that had been passed down through their families for generations. How they'd eaten everything. This year's crops that were growing. This year's food. Next year's seed. Both food for people and livestock. Turns out, grasshoppers can eat hope. That was when he remembered his other job. Priesthood. See, when his dad was just a boy, a foreign army had attacked their country. And when they rolled through, they had destroyed everything too, like these stinking grasshoppers, only worse. They burned fields. They killed livestock, tore down towns and cities, and even their national cathedral. 
They heaped up bodies in great piles and torched them, then took what remained of the few defenseless civilians captive and dragged them back to their homeland. Every time his daddy told him the story, he tried to picture it in his mind's eye. An army as thick as a plague of locusts. Today he finally understood just a little bit what it might have been like. And his elderly father would have to live through yet another invasion. This time of a plague of locusts as thick and vast as an invading army. The army that had taught their people the term holocaust. Ruins of the past all around them haunted them. And now this. It's the background of the passage that Tom shared with us just a few moments ago. It's the story behind the Old Testament book of Joel. And though its actual setting is ancient, we could just insert a couple of cell phones and a Toyota Prius and a tax return and the thing contemporizes pretty quickly. Its principles are from that world, but they are for our world. Let me show you what I mean. Perhaps today you find yourself in some ruins. Maybe you find yourself this morning facing a ruined love. If we misdefine love, it ruins it. So we've been trying to learn the biblical definition of love, the definition that comes from every biblical word, both Old and New Testament. Every Bible word for love has at its core the idea of preference. And so we come with this definition. I want you to say it with me. Love is a demonstrated preference for the well-being of others over and above myself, even at great personal expense by the help of the Holy Spirit. How about one more time? Love is a demonstrated preference for the well-being of others over and above myself, even at great personal expense by the help of the Holy Spirit. It's important that we understand what love really is because a misdefined love gets ruined. Let me show you what I mean. In our culture, you will often uh, find people talking about love as something that they felt as soon as he walked in the room. And what you felt was a chemistry experiment, which may have been going wrong, <laughs> but it wasn't love. It's not an evil thing. It's, it's not a shouldn't, but that isn't love. That's attraction. In our culture, you'll often hear people say love is a 50-50 deal. But I, this morning, I would, I would suggest that love is not a deal at all. Love isn't me getting you over a barrel or you getting me over one. Love is me preferring the other person and not holding out until I get what I want. If you keep going back to the baseline of God's love for us, which is demonstrated in the life of Jesus, you will see that love is never a manipulative thing that is waiting for what it wants. It's not giving you something so that I can get from you what I want later. It's me giving my life in the interest of your well-being. 
If love is misdefined, it also disappoints because we then expect it to bring fulfillment in ways that it never can. When you try to turn love into something it isn't, it becomes the most disappointing thing in all of life. You find yourself in disappointed in a relationship today because either you or the person that you're in the relationship with are trying to get love instead of trying to give it, then perhaps you can identify with Joel, who sat with ruins all around and could barely lift his head when he thought of one more big disappointment coming. Perhaps today you find yourself with a ruined hope. Love that is used for ourselves not only ruins love itself, but it also erodes our hope in love itself. And our souls begin to sink into despair. We get cynical about love. And that fact has spawned countless songs that have topped the charts. It might be solely responsible for country western music. Looking for love in all the wrong places. I didn't want a word of testimony there, but I got it. A ruined love also erodes our hope in the institutions that were given to us by God himself to protect us. Listen, this business of a misdefined love that gets ruined is really the driving reason behind the epidemic of divorce in our land. Listen now, divorce is not the great sin. It is the symptom of a great sickness, a cancer of the human soul, the cancer of I prefer myself over you. This misdefined, misused love makes people despair or lose hope that love might possibly last a lifetime. And because they don't know that the Holy Spirit can enable us to love when we come to the end of our own abilities, lots of folks just get to the end of their abilities and quit. One more marriage, one more relationship on the ash heap. It is then also the driving reason behind the epidemic of cohabitation or, or couples living together instead of getting married. They say, I don't think love can last, so I don't think marriage can last. Let's not go there. Let's not kid ourselves. I mean, I don't want to be alone, so let's just set up shop for a while and we'll get out of this what we can. Maybe another one will come along later. About 15 years ago, a book hit the New York Times bestseller list. It was titled Starter Marriages. The idea was, of course, it's not going to last. So learn what you can from the first one, but don't stay in it too long. Take all the goodness that you got out of the first one. Work it into your next one. This idea of a misdefined love, a ruined love that begins to erode our hope is also the driving reason behind our culture's abandonment of the church. The sad truth is that we have not offered real love consistently enough to the people in the world around us. We've been extra good at offering rules. We've been pretty proficient at offering empty religious forms 
Then we lashed out at one another because we preferred ourselves over one another. And when casual passers-by, people have been trying to hope that there's a God and that this might be the place where, where they can meet him. They see us being small toward one another, doing things that just don't matter anymore. They lose hope in the church. The American scene is one that's littered with the corpses of those who've been hurt so deeply by churches and church people that they will never, ever give it another chance. And they have raised another generation that has not only not experienced church, but all they've heard is horror stories about its emptiness and its meaninglessness. Here's the statistical measure, an undeniable fact. Among Americans age 40 and younger, 42% have never darkened the door of a church except for a funeral or a wedding. And it is because of the church. Because we have offered them a ruined love. And because we have offered them a ruined religion. Well, this might not go on my list of... uh, Ten favorite sermons ever, huh? Listen, you hear all the time, you see t-shirts and bumper stickers and stuff on the internet. People post it on Facebook that says, God hates religion. No, he doesn't. God doesn't hate religion. He invented it. Let's define it correctly, however. Religion is a planned way of seeking and responding to God that people can do together. It's a planned way of seeking and responding to God that people can do together. Well, that doesn't sound like some great evil, does it? We we sit down and think and, and plan an approach to the God of heaven. And because we don't want to do it by ourselves, we plan to do it with one another. I think that's a kind of religion that might sell to the masses. The problem is that we ruined religion by reducing it to the mere repetition of forms without engaging our hearts. And that's why Joel said, hey, tear your hearts, not your clothes. You know what he's driving at? It was a a, a common practice in ancient cultures still common in Middle Eastern cultures today, that as an expression of great sorrow or sadness, they will grab their clothes and tear them while they're there in public, okay? In front of mom and dad at the table, in front of the kids at the funeral, in the public square when an announcement is made, grab the shirt, give it a tear, and it's symbolic of what has happened in the heart, unless it's not unless it's the shirt you bought to tear for the show, right? When Joel spoke to the people of ancient Israel, he said, enough with the show if there's nothing on the inside. Tear your hearts, not your garments. God doesn't hate religion. God hates empty religion. He hates ruined religion. Question. To the church, that's us. Why do we keep gutting religion of its passion and heart and real substance and keep reducing it to its forms? Its forms 
end up killing the souls of men and women and teens and children when we don't show one another what is behind them. And that is crazy. For a body that is given the mission of demonstrating the love of God to a world around us, we can no longer afford to cling to our forms that once meant so much to us, but which have become dull and lifeless. It long ago ruined the church in Europe. It's pretty effectively ruining the church in America today, too. That's a lot of bad news, isn't it? Ruined love, ruined hope, ruined religion. Let me introduce to you the God of the ruins. The scriptures paint the story of a God who loves us in our ruined condition. By misunderstanding and then misusing love, by abandoning the institutions that were given to protect us, by emptying religion of all of the good stuff and reducing it to harsh and meaningless forms, we find ourselves with tattered hearts and lives. We find ourselves a bit in ruins. The good news of the scriptures, however, is that the God of the ruins is not run off by any of this. Instead, he continues to love us and in a very particular way. Verse 13 says, uh, let's see, translation that uh, Tom was reading from says, rend your heart, not your garments. Return to the Lord your God, for he is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger and abounding in love. Ah, the love revolution. What do you know? The love revolution. This morning, instead of talking a whole lot about how you can show love to other people, I want to talk to you about the foundation for the love revolution. And the foundation is not the sometimes and inconsistent love of human beings. It is the love of the God made available to humans. I mentioned specifically the translation that Tom read because if you read many other translations, you will find many other terms where he read the word love. Interesting, huh? If you read from the New American Standard Version, if you read from the King James, if you read from the New King James, if you read from the Holman uh, translation, if you read from any number of them, you'd get a list of terms like this where it says, where Tom read, slow to anger and abounding in love, you would hear slow to anger and abounding in unfailing love, slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness, slow to anger and abounding in faithful love, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. Why all the difference? The difference is this. It's a translator's nightmare. The word in Hebrew is, shared this with you months ago, chesed. Got it. Chesed. You have to kind of half cough when you say it. Sort of fun. Say it with me. Chesed. Yeah. Chesed. And the word never can be translated by just one word because it comes to us from this strange cultural practice that was widespread beyond Israel through all of its neighbors. We find it as a practice even among the Native American Indians. It seems to be something that is universal and hardwired into humanity. And it is the idea of forming a certain kind of relationship that is durable enough to make it through all of life. And that form of relationship is called a blood covenant. Covenant is a word that uh, you may have come across if you've bought real estate recently because you want to know all the things that your neighbors are going to require of you and all the things that your neighbors are going to prohibit you from doing. 
a covenant in that sense is an agreement between all the people who live on your street about what we will do toward one another and what we will not do toward one another. World without end. Amen. Amen. We find covenants in very um, uh, few places left in American culture. But whenever somebody performs a wedding ceremony, all the covenant memory of our culture kicks in again. And we start saying things like, I make vows to you. I will be faithful. I will keep myself only unto you. We make all kinds of promises. We call upon the God of heaven to hold us accountable and to give us strength. And then we say this little phrase that helps us understand it really is a blood covenant. Till death do us part. The idea is that in ancient blood covenants, that we would enter into this agreement together. We would spell out the terms. Here's what I'll do for you. Here's what you'll do for me. Here's what I will never do to you. And here's what you should never do to me. Here's the benefits of living faithfully. Here's the consequences of living unfaithfully. And they would seal this, this whole thing with a sacrifice and with a meal. And then they would call upon their gods to hold them accountable and to give them the strength to be faithful, but then would say, after they looked at the pile of sacrifice, but if I am not faithful to this covenant, may it be done to me as was done to this animal. May my head be cut off and my body thrown to the birds of the air. He puts the blood in blood covenant. Essentially, when you enter into a blood covenant, you enter into an agreement in which you promise to be faithful for the rest of your life, to do what it takes to keep that relationship healthy and holy and good, even if it kills you to do so. But in ancient forms of the covenant, you also gave to the other person the right to bear the sword. In other words, if I'm not faithful, if I quit before, it kills me. You have the right to require of me my very life. The word that describes the faithfulness to the covenant because of a great and beautiful passion for the other person. An appreciation for the harmony of those two lives being welded together over time. Born up by all the faithfulness you can muster and the help of your God. Faithfully looking after the well-being of this relationship and of the other person in it, confident that they will do the same, that word is chesed. The steadfast love of the Lord. In this passage that Tom read to us earlier, no matter what translation you read it in, it comes down to this. Rend your hearts, not your garments. Forget empty religion. Go for the real kind. Return to the Lord your God, for he is gracious and compassionate. He's slow to anger and full of chesed. Always, 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 always faithful. Always loving. Always looking after your well-being at his expense. I asked you this morning if I could introduce to you 
the God of the ruins. But you see, I'm not going to bring him in the side door because he's already here. The scriptures make it very, very clear that he meets us in our ruins. That's where he lives. Verse 17 asks the question, where is God? And the passage offers it as sort of a a mocking question that is asked by those who look at the people who stand among the ruins of misdefined love and crushed hope and empty religion. But there is a straight up answer to the question, where is God? He is here with us today in this place and he stands ready to wade into the puddle of your tears with you. The God of the ruins also offers to help us sort through the ruins. He offers to help us decide what what from the past to throw away, what to hold on to, and where to rebuild. An invitation to you this morning. Bring to God your ruins and your love. Bring to God your ruins and your love. Listen, you don't have to be embarrassed before God, even if you are the one to blame for the ruins of your life. God doesn't look down his nose at you. He loves and he can't wait to connect with you, even in your ruins. So bring to him your ruined love, your ruined hope, your ruined relationships, your ruined religion. And today he will begin to help you sort and rebuild among the ruins. Question, what does he ask in return? Only this, your love. The real kind. Not the religious kind. The real kind. It comes from your heart. Not merely some outward display that looks or sort of passes for love, but the kind that tears your heart open when you think, about what might happen if you really love him with all of your heart. He asks only that you come willing to learn how to love him back and how to then give real love to his other children. A misdefined love ruins love. It ruins our hope, it ruins our relationships, it ruins our religion, but there is a God who stands among the ruins, and though he is sad for us, his love isn't ruined. It is still selfless and strong. It is chesed. His hope isn't ruined. He still hopes for an eternity of loving relationship with you, no matter what. He still offers true religion to you. The true religion of the heart, of many hearts seeking and responding to him together. And that's why we gather here on Sundays. Is because at some level we want to seek him together. That's why we came today. We wanted to seek God and we didn't want to have to do it alone. One way that the church has sought the Lord together down through time is through a meal of our own. A ceremonial meal that we call Holy Communion. And everyone who is here is invited to this meal today. In the Church of the Nazarene, we do not believe that you have to have been baptized in this church. You don't have to present some card to us that shows that you have adequately prepared for communion. Instead, we welcome all who are reaching toward God this morning. 
for the one millionth time, and for the very first time, to come and receive these tiny little portions, one little glass of wine, one little morsel of bread. They are symbols to us of the blood and the body, or in other words, the very life of God offered to those of us who've had all kinds of things ruined for us. We're going to end the service with music today. Two kinds. The first is a recorded song that I simply want you to listen to. After that, we'll sing together, worshiping the Lord. All told, about five songs. And we're going to serve communion at the same time, but rather than you sitting where you are today and us passing the plates down the rows, Pastor Bill and Pastor Dwayne are going to come and they'll, they'll position themselves here at the head of these two aisles. And whenever you're ready, you can just come forward and receive the bread and the wine. You can partake right there or you can take it back to your seat and pray for a while. You can come as an individual. You can come with a friend. You can come as a family. Uh, we're not going to dictate any of that. But let me tell you, when you come today, we are not doing this as empty religion. We do this with our whole hearts. And sometimes our hearts are full of ruined things. That we are coming and desperately hoping to exchange. God, how about the ruins of this relationship? And I'll take relationship with you as perfectly represented by your body and your blood. God, I can't even hope anymore about my son. I'm going to bring to you ruined hope and ask that you would rebuild it in me. I receive your life. You sometimes, however, we sometimes approach the altar in the meal with hearts that are full of thanksgiving. With our view dominated by the good things that God has done for us, and this then becomes a celebratory act. Hey, listen, as you receive communion today, if you receive it that way, don't worry if the person next to you is in tears. It's okay for you to rejoice today. Sometimes we come with hearts that are full of questions. We don't know how God can work all this stuff out. But somewhere deep inside, we are desperately hoping that he will do so. And when we stretch toward God with questions, there's a word for that. The word is faith. See, Faith isn't, I know all the right answers, I believe all the right things about God, therefore I'll come and religiously go through this thing and then God and I are square. Sometimes faith looks like, I don't know about this, but I'm stepping out. And when you step the direction of the God of the ruins, you will find this promise from him. Behold, I make all things new. He can build a faith for you today if you reach his direction.